Uh, it's so good to be with you this morning and to get to the opportunity to share God's Word. Uh, again, uh, I'm here because uh, Chris Legg is in leading a trip in Israel right now. Um, and so uh, we certainly want to be uh, prayerful of their trip and uh, expectant of them uh, coming home. Chris and I actually had the opportunity of going uh, to Israel uh, the first time that then, I guess, First Baptist uh, did its own trip. Uh, I got to accompany and go with him, and we had a lot of fun. Uh, I got to go with some family members and then with several friends, and so it made the trip all that more memorable uh, and a lot of cool lessons I get to reflect back upon. Um, one of the uh, sillier memories that I know I have of it is, uh, if you don't know this about your lead pastor, um, and this is a trait that I share, so I'm not just telling on him, I'm confessing on the behalf of both of us, um, we have a natural dispensation when it comes to signs. Whenever there's a sign, either two things happen. One, we read it, and our gut instantly wants to not obey it. We're sinful. We're fallen people. We're all in this together. But honestly, the second is, oftentimes, we don't even see them. It's like signs don't even matter. Like, oh, yeah, signs are written for the people who they matter to. We're clearly not one of those people, and we don't even, like, pay attention to them. But in Israel, you can't miss them. There are signs everywhere about everything, warning about all kinds of stuff. Uh, and largely, it's probably uh, because, you know, again, th there's so many signs because it's full of so many tourists. There's always uh, people around, always people doing things. And some of them make sense because you're at some site and they want to preserve it and do whatever. But then there's others that don't make sense. That you just have to, like, ask yourself, you're like, that sign is here because of that one tourist, right? You know what I'm talking about. Like that one tourist came through and now they're like, oh my goodness, we need a sign. Uh, and Chris and I would always have fun whenever we found those of making up whatever story about that one tourist and the reason why they need that sign. Uh, to illustrate kind of these aren't, these aren't signs from Israel, but these are, you know, again, when you read them, you got to think, what is the story? Why is this sign here? I mean, you just feel bad for whatever employee walked in on whatever scene and was like, guys, we need a sign. We need a sign right away. That's got to be a story. That's got to be a story behind that one. This feels like insurance. Like, this feels like somebody touched it and sued, and then now insurance says you need a sign. And that now feels like they're just poking fun. Surely, <laughs> surely there's not a story here, but they know the ridiculousness of science. And that feels similar about this last one, too. Yeah, now, now they truly have to be uh, just mocking uh, with this warning sign, the intelligence of whoever they think needs to be hearing that. Um, but those, of course, I'd say in jest, but this morning what we're going to be doing uh, is we're going to be continuing our study in Second Peter. We're going to be starting now off with chapter 3. We're actually going to run into Peter putting back on his pastor's hat and giving us some warning signs, not as a scoffer, but about some scoffers. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, you can open it up and you can or you can turn it on and navigate over to 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be reading out of the ESV uh, version this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you and want a hard copy to follow along, you can grab one out of the chair racks in front of you. But now out of reverency of God's Word and to remind ourselves how easy it is for us to change our physical posture, but we're only desperate of Him to change our spiritual posture, I'm going to invite you to stand in the reverency of God's Word for our reading this morning, again starting in chapter 3. <clears throat> this, now, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder 
that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. The very words of God. Y'all may be seated. So you've been studying with us through First Peter or through Second Peter this time. We've um, we've seen kind of the, a shift in a lot of these tra- uh, chapter transitions. The first chapter, um, Peter kind of takes this very pastoral, very lovingly. He's writing on the on behalf of the believers. He's trying to encourage them. Um, and he specifically is pointing to the promises and the provisions of God that they can count on the promises of God that they can count on His provision, making the way, doing what he, they couldn't do on their own, and thus they then can participate uh, in a life of godliness and holiness. And so the only reason that the holiness and godliness even exists is because God promises it and God provides for it, and this is thus the call to believers to participate. But then we've got a stark shift for those of y'all who've been with us through chapter two, right? Chapter one seemed um, very more upbeat and encouraging, and then chapter two took a very dark turn downwardly, more over to condemnation, and no longer was he addressing the believers of the church, he was addressing unbelievers, and specifically unbelievers who were proclaiming a false gospel. They were false teachers, and he goes in repetition and repetition of condemnment towards them, of condemnation of uh, their abuse of the gospel, um, their deliberate denying of the master and using the, the gospel message not as a way of salvation and faith, um, but as an excuse uh, to bolster up themselves and in their greed and in their lusts. And so he condemns these false teachers. And then that goes all the way through chapter two. And now we're picking up in this transitional time of starting chapter three. And it's helpful because Peter kind of puts back on his pastoral hat here. Um, He's putting back on his pastoral concern. He's wanting to continue the theme that he started in chapter one. Namely, you can look to God and his promises and you can participate in them because he provides. And you'll see this coming up again now with some newer warnings. He makes this transition uh, kind of happening by first addressing uh, who he's talking to and then a quick warning um, about uh, who they need to be on the lookout for. You can already see the, you can note the, the change in the tone just in this first verse, right, with who he addresses because now he's no longer addressing harshly these unbelieving false teachers. Now he starts off and says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. He uses this term, Beloved. The NIV translates this word friends. Um, I think it's probably more appropriately here beloved because there seems to be a sense of love that is higher than just friendship. The Greek word agapetos is coming from the root of agape, which we know is the highest and foremost of unconditional love. And so here it's not just merely that he's considering these friends of his. He's saying and acknowledging that they are the beloved. This is the same word that Matthew records in his gospel of God our Father saying to Jesus, his son, beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The same title, same word. 
Similarly, in the Apostle Paul, uh, in Romans 11, speaks to those that reject the gospel as enemies of God and as those who accept uh, faith and are the elect as beloved of God. So enemies and beloved. There's a, a stark contrast here. The false teachers of last week were the enemies. Now Peter's moving into uh, the beloved. He's acknowledging his role as a pastor, loving them, and ultimately, the only reason he gets to love them and call them his beloved is because God has called them uh, and named them that term. Peter will use this term actually five times in this chapter alone. And so he's writing to his beloved, counting them as his, under his care, and acknowledging that it only works because Christ first calls them the beloved. We get this interesting kind of textual note that this is the second letter that he is writing to them. Most naturally, we would just read that simply and look back and say, well, of course, this is Second Peter. We, we already studied First Peter, so this is now the second letter he's sending. But if you know anything about uh, academics and Christian theology, anytime uh, that a bunch of people can get in a room and disagree with one of each other about uh, a doctrine or an idea, uh, don't worry. The commentators don't miss this as an opportunity either. There's actually a lot of uh, discussion on is this the actual true second letter? Was First Peter the first letter? Some think Jude was the first letter that he's referencing here and that uh, because the messaging is so similar. Um, others think that there's a lost letter out there expounding on some themes that, that are new here that aren't in 1 Peter um, and that we just don't have that recorded in our canon. Uh, others think that this actually is two letters put together into one in our canon and that actually um, 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2 was the first letter sent. Now he's sending chapter 3 as a second letter, um, but ultimately... And I don't think it matters. Uh, what does, why it doesn't matter is because what we don't miss in any of those cases is we don't miss the purpose of why Peter is writing. Because Peter here now states out his purpose statement. The meaning of any of these letters, whatever he was writing, the meaning and the purpose was to be accomplished here in these words. Again, in verse 1, it reads like this. This is now the second letter that I'm writing you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. This is the aim of Peter's letter. Why he's writing what he's writing is he's wanting to stir up our sincere minds. He's wanting to remind us of truths. The King James Version actually translates this um, more literally as stirring up of pure minds. Pure minds. This is the Greek word here is actually a combination uh, of two words in its form put together. The first one is the, sh the shining of the sun, and the second one is to judge. I may be like, wait, wait, what's that mean? And ultimately, figuratively, it means a mind that is sun judged, which then I think bodes even more appropriately to this word sincere that's translated here. Um, because sincere, at least in English, uh, has a Latin root. Uh, many of y'all have heard this illustration before. Uh, it's popular amongst coming from the pulpit. Um, but sincere in its Latin root, roots is two words, uh, sente and sere, and it's put together meaning without wax. And the story that would go is recorded in the 17th century in the etymology of it um, was that when you would go to market and buy a clay pot, uh, you would want a sincere pot, one without wax. Um, because essentially when they had pots that were cracked, the, the, what the, mar the merchant would do to pass those off because they're no good would be to wipe the crack down and fill it with wax. Because then he could fill it with water and prove and test to its own condition because it would hold water because the wax would hold the water in. But that, well, of course, wasn't proof positive. And so what they would do is instead when you go to the market to make sure you didn't end up with a bad pot, you would take that pot empty and hold it up looking with, through the sun. 
And if the sun, you could see any visible signs of sunlight creeping through the wax, then you knew it was not a sincere pot, it was a pot with wax. In essence, you would sun test the wax to know what actually, if the cracks are there or not. This, I think, is the meaning of our minds that Peter's pointing to. God desires for his people to have sun-judged minds, not one's lives marked by cracks of sin that they're just trying to cover up with wax. So this is the sincere mind, the pure mind that we're being called to. Again, this is in stark contrast to the false teachers who had an evil mind, had a depraved mind. This is now the contradiction of a now pure mind. They sought to live out the sin. We seek to be sinless, pure So what does Peter want them to do to stir up their minds by way of reminder? What's the process here that Peter's going to get to? Um, Well, it's simple, and he continues it in the second verse. He says it like this, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. We are beings who are in constant need of reminder. This is just the condition that we are, right? Right. When we go too long without remembering, we tend to forget. Um, So then God created us to have touch points to return to, to be reminded of truth. And this is one of them, is that we are beings created for reminders. Now, personally, I have uh, grown over the years in appreciating reminders more and more or seeing the importance of reminders even in my own life. Um, and, And that's not just... You know, I know some of y'all probably are thinking, oh, just you wait, young buck. If you're starting to forget things now, don't worry. It's, it's, coming, it's coming for you. And I, and I don't just mean that in a, as, a, uh, as a, a pragmatic appreciation of needing to be reminded because I find myself more and more forgetful. Um, I actually mean it in the sense of I appreciate those that have this baseline disposition, a personality, you should say, of, of wanting reminders in their lives. Um, I say this because the main lesson or teacher of this for me is my wife. Um, again, you probably know these people. Uh, some of you are these people. My wife is one of, this, one of these people. Um, if you open up her calendar, um, I mean, she is copious amounts of events scattered all through there. Um, not only that, uh, if you open up, she's one of those that makes like six or seven to-do lists a week. Uh, and then continually crosses them off. And all through the day, if you spend time with her, her phone is going off with these reminders of something to do uh, or something that she's got to make sure she doesn't forget. She has reminders all over the place as a fabric of her life. Even when we started out uh, in, in our marriage and through technology, she got so excited because now we could have combined calendars, Right. Now her calendar not only had all of her things in her world, it now had all of my things in her, wor- in her world as well. And now it was just even better because all the things are there for reminding. For me, that didn't last long. We now have three calendars. We have all three are turned on and she looks at them all the time. I only have mine turned on and the other one, which is our shared calendar that she populates with things I need to know. And I don't have hers turned on. And you may think, well, what's wrong with you, Paul? Why don't you love your wife and the things that she's doing? No, it's not just that. It really is purely pragmatic. Because even alone, I went ahead and turned it on and scrolled back just over the couple months. And as day-long events, before you even get to what you're doing this day, you have to scroll through these day-long events to get to there. And then here's, here's some of them. Um, the first one, I came across some random kid down the street's birthday party. Um, and his birthday is now forever in our calendar because we celebrated his birthday party once. Uh, our goddaughter's half birthday I came across. 
because birthdays are important to celebrate, but half birthdays are also important for my wife. Not only that, we have friends' wedding anniversaries. We have even families and our own dating anniversaries. You know, all the important stuff, like uh, $2 all-day cinnamon rolls at Cineholic. That's a day's (laughs) event. She finds, the point is, she finds joy in the reminders. Um, There's something of just her natural disposition wants to celebrate those things. And I've grown to appreciate it more and more because I probably would not have thought of our goddaughter on that day and prayed for her on her half birthday um, because I would have been too busy to just skip through all the things I need to do. But luckily, because Jill has reminders, I get reminded of these things as well. So I appreciate her and I appreciate the joy of reminder. And I think that there is something similar here that Peter's communicating in his tone, um, that this to be stirred up in reminding of our sincere minds is something that we could take as a joyful countenance, as a joyful experience. So what he's saying now of the reminder is, is more pragmatic, that you, should be, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. It's fascinating here. Um, Peter is making this claim of essentially equaling authorities. He's putting all of the authorities of each one of these three as equal to one another. Um, He's pointing to the prophets. He's pointing to the apostles. And he's pointing to Jesus' words himself, that all three stand as messengers and messages of God and thus have equal standing of authority in our lives. And this is essentially Peter's first call. How are you going to stir up your mind? Well, the first call is look back. Look back on God's word. Look back on the prophets. Look back on Jesus. Look back on the messages relayed through the apostles. You want to be stirred up in a reminder? Look back to God's word. That's his first, his first challenge here. And all of these three and what represents by the authority of the word is that it is a reminder that it has authority in our lives. And we aren't ones to just look back and just count it as good knowledge, but we are to look back and put ourselves under it as our authority. We spoke of this a couple weeks ago. We said it like this in the concept of freedom. We said freedom is not the absence of duty, rather is the empowerment of God to do which pleases God. True freedom is not that you don't have any duty. True freedom is that you have the perfect and right duty of glorifying God, and he empowers you to do that. We didn't speak back then, but a quote that is known and is allegedly assigned to Abraham Lincoln, um, but we don't really know that firsthand, uh, goes something like this. True freedom is not not having a master. True freedom is not getting the choice of having a master. True freedom is instead choosing which master you'll serve. And I think that that has it on the nose, and that's what we saw amongst the false uh, teachers uh, last couple of weeks, is we saw that they were trying to misuse freedom and say that freedom um, was you to not have to be obligated to the duties that Christ has set before you, but that was erroneous. Instead, we're reminded Peter is saying, no, 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 where true freedom is, is you do have an authority, and God has given you the power to obey that authority and to live under that authority. And right now, Peter's saying, stir up your minds by looking to that authority, look back at God's word. Not only does he say, look back at the prophets, he also says, look around. Look around right now. You don't even just have to look back at God's word. You can look around right now and you can look at the scoffers. In essence, you can look back at the example of what you should do and you can look around now at the example that you shouldn't do. And these are the scoffers. Verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. 
following their own sinful desires. You know, I feel like this word scoffing, um, at least for me, doesn't feel like a, uh, a, a word that's, you know, probably more normalized. It feels a little bit antiquated. It feels like somebody, something somebody in Britain would say or, um, you know, medieval English or something like that. Um, you know, how many times you hear it on the playground, you know, some two kids getting in a fight and one of them throws out, you know, the best yo mama joke he has and the other replies, you know, sir, do you scoff me? You know, no, they don't, they don't talk like that anymore. It seems a little bit older. It also seems to at least catch my mind because um, Peter's repetition here, this idea of, he says not just that there's these scoffers, um, but here specifically, he's saying that scoffers, who will come scoffing? Um, He has this repetition that brings it out uh, to our attention all the more. I actually, uh, I title all my sermons out of habit. I rarely share the titles, and it's just really for my own note-taking. But under this section, I titled this sermon, Scoffing Scoffers Who Scoff Scoffingly. Because apparently that's correct grammar. All that is the right forms of using the words of scoff. But even if scoffing seems out of mind today, it certainly isn't out of mind in the scriptures. All across the New Testament, we run into scoffers. Certainly across the Old Testament, we run into scoffers. Especially you can't get through reading Psalms or Proverbs without running into these uh, group of people. There in the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew root um, actually just is that said lutz um, has two forms that are primarily used. It's primarily translated as mockers or as scoffers. But the word also can be translated as ambassadors, which gives a hint a little bit more of this notion or relation of these scoffers. It's not only that they mock, it's not only that they scoff, it is also that they feel like they have the responsibility as an ambassador uh, to constantly be pushing that scoffing, mocking message in every scenario and to to whoever that they come across and whoever that they're against. Uh, They take this as a personal responsibility. Warren Wearsby in his commentator, uh, he has such a great way with words, and so he put it like this. A scoffer is someone who treats lightly that which ought to be taken seriously. That was pretty good. A scoffer is essentially something that, when something should be taken very seriously, what they do is they take it lightly, and they mock it. And again, biblically, scoffers are the ones who see God's truth that should be taken very seriously, and instead they mock it. And they mock those that hold to it. This is why we read Psalm 1, um, 1 through 2 already this morning. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. You see Peter's uh, admission here. Look back to scripture. Don't be like the scoffers. Look back to Scripture and do that. Look around at the scoffers and don't do that. Again, not only the psalmist mentions scoffers, but the Proverbs does. Actually, 17 times uh, mockers or scoffers show up there across um, the book of Proverbs. And really, two predominant uh, characteristics when you read through them all, two predominant characteristics are described of them. Um, The first is that the scoffer has a closed mind, that he's not changeable, that he's, he's... strategically dogmatic and fixed in his own perception and he's just going to push that to the end and nothing, he's not open to new ideas, he's not open to uh, correction. In fact, Proverbs 13.1 speaks of the wise being open to correction but the scoffer not being willing to listen. 
And Scoffer doesn't engage in his arguments in a two-way conversation. He only does in a one-way. He's not hearing how he could be wrong. They're not hearing and willing to hear correction. Instead, they're being dogmatic. Similarly, it's, it's interesting in Proverbs 20, um, verse 1, it could be said that the scoffer is no more open to reason than the belligerently drunk. That in essence, if you've ever tried to convince a drunk person to do something or not do something that they want to be doing for their own good, but they're not in control of their own mind, hence not being sober-minded, then they're not going to listen to reason. It's that same analogy that uh, the proverb speaks of these scoffers. They're these prideful, closed-minded people, not open to reason. That's the first characteristic. A second characteristic that emerges is that a scoffer shows no respect for opponents or opposing views. It's not just that a scoffer shows no respect for opposing views, but he also shows no respect for the opponent itself. Proverbs 9, verse 7 and 8 shows that a scoffer doesn't merely refute an idea, but instead he belittles, he insults, he mocks not just the idea, but the individual. This is the expression of pride, not just, in essence, building himself up in his own pompous and pride and knowledge, but also needing to tear others down. This is what scoffers do. Pastor Timothy Keller, in writing on this, put it this way. And these two forms together, dogmatism and contemptuous derision comprise the spiritual condition of a scoffer. Two things, set in his ways, not open to listening, and willfully putting others down and mocking them. So what's the motivation of these scoffers to scoff God's truth here? Well, again, in verse 3, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Why does a scoffer scoff? So that they can walk in their own sinful desires. Mark Twain famously had written a quote, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. A scoffer perhaps would write it, never let the truth get in the way of a good time. A scoffer seeks to hold on to his sinful short-term desires, and thus, why could he be bothered with truth? Again, going back to Pastor Warren Wearsby on this with another one of his poignant ones, when your lifestyle contradicts the Word of God, you must either change your lifestyle or change the Word of God. This is what the scoffers are doing is that they're wanting to change the Word of God to fit in with their sinful desires. This is not something just related back then. This is something new even today and relatable now that we can see um, all over our culture and our society and the temptation of Christians even to fall into this. More recently, a couple of years ago, um, a youth pastor, a friend of mine who I had an acquaintance when we were doing student ministry together, um, we were chatting about how uh, a rapper out of Houston had come up with this song um, uh, that essentially is, was, was titled, Try Jesus, Don't Try Me. And one of his students actually showed up on Wednesday night wearing a shirt to that effect. Um, and a lot of the other students were kind of thought it was cool and they were sharing it around on their social media platforms because it's kind of this little dab at the hat of they wanting to be little gangsters themselves and hold on to the toughness of this world but also not deny Jesus. So that was their message, you know, don't try me, you know, you should try Jesus. And the, the song goes along in the first couple lines like this, try Jesus, not me, because I throw hands. Try Jesus, please don't try me because I fight. Again, you can hear the toughness in this message. They thought it was a clever way to express that identity or express that desire of behavior, but also get to acknowledge who Jesus was and point people to him. 
It was interesting, my friend looked up the lyrics for the first time and looked up all of the lyrics and actually got to use it as a teachable moment because the lyrics do continue. And it illustrates this very same point. In one line it says, I know what he said about getting slapped, but if you touch me or mind, we're going to have to scrap. Oh, he said, turn the other cheek. Oh, but that's one part of the Bible that just don't sit right with me. And goes on, and try Jesus, don't try me. This is the message of the scoffers. This is ultimately what they're doing is summed up in this. Yeah, 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 I know Jesus said that, but I don't really like that part of Scripture. Okay, I know this is God's truth, but I kind of really like walking in what I know is not true. And what a scoffer seeks to do is a scoffer seeks to minimize God's truth as revealed and to curse and put down those who hold to it because he's trying to hold on to the sin in his life. Because again, this is what we come through that Pastor Wearsby put of us. Either you are changed by the word of God or you change the word of God. There's no taking both in the same equation. So Peter's saying, stir up your minds, look back to the prophets, look around to the scoffers. And so how are these scoffers seeking to change the word of God? Well, we see what they want to pervert in their message in verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In essence, they're doubting the promise that is to come. They forgot what the writer of Hebrews wrote in 1023, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The believer here remembers that faithful is he who promised. The scoffer proclaims, well, where's this promise? They choose disbelief rather than deliberately choosing to wait on the promise fulfilled. Specifically, the promise of the doubt of his coming was not actually related back to the first coming of Jesus. They're not doubting Jesus coming as a baby. They're doubting his second coming. Similarly, in confusion, um, in, we oftentimes sing a uh, Christmas hymn in celebration of Jesus' first coming that was actually only written to bring about praise of his second coming. That was Sir Isaac, uh, uh, Sir Isaac Watts' first kind of attempt at writing Joy to the World was actually all not about his first coming, even though that's when we sing it. It's all about the second coming of Christ. And we get to that when we run into um, the third verse. No more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. This is what Jesus will do when he comes back. This is the promise that Peter's trying to point us to of why good living now. Well, because he's still coming. He's faithful in his promise. But the scoffers are essentially saying, well, no, 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 there's no proof of him coming, so there's no reason for me to put away my sin. Instead, I should just live in my sin, and his grace will abound. Their reasoning of why they doubt uh, the second coming, again, is just so apt to our culture today. Again, verse 4, the end. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Essentially, they're saying this promise has been around a long time, and as long as I've looked back, I haven't seen the fulfillment of that promise, so why on earth would I think anything differently about what's still to come? This is a logical fallacy. It would be the same as me saying, well, I look back over the, the rest of my life so far, and I haven't died yet, so surely I'm not going to die one day, because I, I haven't seen it so far. 
This is the short-sightedness that they were doing. They were trying to use what was in the past as a reason to define the future. This is, in essence, one of the, one of the best and keyest kind of expressions of a naturalistic philosophy um, presented in Scripture that we know many hold to today. A naturalistic philosophy meaning that there's no outside divine course that comes and intercedes into the natural reality. This is what they meant. As far back as we can see since the start of all this, we haven't seen God interact and come in with his divine hand. So this is all just a natural progression moving forward. What makes us think it'll be any different looking at the future? More specifically, um, this has been highlighted. Um, the specific term for this is a word that I even struggle to say, uniformitarianism. That's not important. Don't remember that. What is important is the concepts or the reason of what that worldview seeks to do because this is the natural worldview that has been adopted um, by culture and by the Western civilization probably in the last hundred years. Um, what it seeks to do is it seeks to present the notion, essentially, the argument that if you can explain it naturally in man's hands, then that is a proof positive that there's no need for a divine God or divine intercessor. If we can explain it in man's power, then we don't need to do it. We don't need to, to entertain this, knowledge, this idea that maybe there's this divine figure coming into the reality. Sir Charles Lyell wrote in a book in 1883 called The the principles of geology, where he essentially explains this in geological terms, and where he points to, well, if we can explain everything in the world and in history that we know through the science of geology, well, then we've proven the, the science of geology basically ruins the attributes of an infinite and eternal being, in his words. This was, his work was highly influential of another Charles, a man named Charles Darwin, who used this type of uh, understanding to build upon in his visitation to the Galapagos Islands. That there's no need for a divine intervention. And actually, there's the possibility is expounded that there is proof there's no divine force. Why? Because we can explain everything as men. And you can hear this philosophy, the same even then, the same that proliferates today, to also be the same that Peter's warning against in Second Peter. These scoffers are saying he's not coming back. Everything happens just the way that it is. But only a fool would believe and bite into this. And Peter is no fool. So that's what he does in 5 and 6. He points to the error of their own argument. Back in 5. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that, and that by means of these, the world that existed was deluged with water and perished. Fascinating little comment on uh, them deliberately overlooking this fact. This isn't just a, a they, oh, it's all right, you know, bless their hearts. They didn't know. No, they knew, and they deliberately overlooked this. Literally, these words mean to conceal willingly. That's why the King James Version translated it as they are willingly ignorant. They're not just ignorant. They're choosing their ignorance. And Peter's pointing out that this... They're missing two, two points that just in their own argument, they're even giving a hint at one of them that undoes this whole thing because they say from the beginning of creation. And that's why Peter starts is that, well, the heavens existed long ago. It happened before creation, the heavens existed and God existed. The fact that we have creation is a sign of a divine intervention. So you can't look back and say, well, 
God's never enacted or divined or showed up, so why will he come back? No, 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 no. The whole reason we are created is because God spoke with his word. With his words, he used water, and through water and his words, he formed land. God's words were enacted to create his divine intervention. But not only that, if they missed that, the same idea of the word and the water shows back up when Peter cites the flood. As the water was formed, the earth was formed out of water and through water, this Genesis 1 creation notion, but it continues. And that means of these, this is speaking to, again, the word of God, the world that then existed, this is creation, was deluged with water and perished. This is a reference to the flood. So not only was God uh, the one who intervened to create all this, God was also the one to intervene to cleanse his creation, again, through his word and through water. And actually, it'll go on, verse 7, uh, that we didn't read and we'll consider next week as we move forward. Um, the same idea of judgment will come again with the word and again with fire. But for now, Peter, I feel like, has dismantled this scoffer's argument. But unfortunately, we know that this message isn't just for the scoffers because the scoffers aren't open-minded to hear that. Rather, this message is for us. This is the calling to his beloved to stir up your pure mind, to look back at the word of God, to look around at the scoffers, to see the authority you should put yourself in and to live in his empowerment to do so. So not only do we look back at the word, not only look around at the scoffers, but next week we're going to get a chance to look forward to his second coming because that's the best news of all. Christ will come again. So in application, what do, we, what do we do with a world that is ever more embracing the arguments of the scoffers and a world that is ever more increasing in the number of scoffers in a world where these scoffers are increasing also in their veracity of the message of attack against anything that contradicts their own opinion. I wrote it in a paragraph simply for me like this, but I'll share it. In a culture still embracing your truth is your truth and my truth is mine, while deliberately violating that philosophy when anyone who disagrees with me it is also labeled hate. And now in an age where the vast majority of public discourse, whether it's news, social media, political messaging, or celebrity messaging, that this now public discourse is growing more and more rewarding the scoffer and growing more and more to function solely as a message in media only for scoffers. So what is a Christian to do with the scripture that we've considered this morning? I think our first reminder is, is exactly what the simplicity of Peter's words we are supposed to stir ourselves up and cling to the word of God. It can be tempting. And I know and we, could, we don't have time. We could, I'm sure, pull up some just Facebook alone and scroll through and see your own words or even your friends, how easily enticing it can be to want to respond to the scoffers with the very same characteristics and vices the scoffers themselves hold. Where then now we're the pride and prideful and arrogant ones. That we're the ones not listening to any other voice and that we are the ones now mocking and belittling and demeaning them. You can't do that. It doesn't work. But similarly, we don't want to just sit back and be discouraged by this ever-growing number of scoffers. Um, I think Peter here is clear of why he's talking about the last days. 
That when we see this ever-growing number of scoffers in our culture and world today, um, one sense of encouragement that we can find is we know that this is what has been predicted. This is what was predicted of the promise, and this is why the promise can be true. Because there are going to be more and more scoffers coming in the last day, and ultimately then, that's going to be the sign that he's going to come back. So be encouraged by these scoffers, because their presence means that the Lord will not tarry and will come back for you. And so may that be the message that we all walk away with, is again the reminder of responding only to scoffers with the only person who rightly and justly can scoff the scoffers, God himself, respond only in God's word. And hide that God's word for yourself as well, and align to see where you fall into temptation of wanting to maybe fill in some cracks with some wax. And instead, change his message instead of changing yourself according to the message he has given. And so may that be our challenge and what we cling to as we close. I'm going to invite um, a team to come back up uh, to lead us in a time of invitation. During this time, uh, we do this not out of just rote repetition or because it's the way the handbook says you end Christian meetings, um, but because we recognize that God's word has been proclaimed this morning and we know that his truth it goes out and does not return void. And so our assumption is that uh, all of us alike have a response this morning to God's word. It may be that you stop and realize that you don't know this God, that you have never put your faith in God, that you find yourselves more in the, the seat of these scoffers, or even worse, in the seat of the false teachers last week. Um, if you pause and reflect on your relationship with God, and if there's any doubt um, that you can't be called his beloved, don't tarry, don't delay. Let today be the day of salvation. Ask whoever brought you here. Come forward, ask us. Um, we'd love to share with you that. Or maybe it is that you now are having to wrestle with what is the Lord does it look like in my life to be under your authority. And I know I'm holding on to this one thing, so I want to give that to you and be desperate for you to do what you can do, which is change us. Or maybe it is that, uh, lastly, that you've met with Lance or the Welcome Home team, and, and you want to be stirred up alongside a dysfunctional family all together like this in the ways of godliness and righteousness. And if you want to come and make church membership known, now's the time. But whatever it is and however you need to respond, I'm going to invite you to stand. Uh, of course, you can ignore that. You can sit. You can come forward. You can kneel. You can take whatever position you need to take. However it is, I ask that you respond. <laughs>